Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. Today, we had a very special guest and a very interesting guy to chat to. I spoke to Zach Mbele, who is a member of South Africa's parliament in the National Assembly uh, for the Democratic Alliance. And this was a very interesting chat, as quite recently I had had a very long talk with Martin van Studden about how the libertarians should really view the Democratic Alliance. Now, this is obviously a big question, as the libertarians don't really have a, a political party that's a home in South Africa, so the question of who to vote for was always a big one. Uh, Martin gave quite some pretty massive scathing criticisms of the DA, I think many of which had some solid backing to them. But I was approached by Zach afterwards, and, and so having a chat with him, he himself, who is a libertarian, who is a member of parliament for the DA, it was very interesting to hear a different perspective, and no doubt there'll be some, uh, some interesting debate after this on various points. But regardless, I had a very nice chat with him, and he actually also really uh, had a big effect on the way I sort of view the DA and how it operates and the things it says. So I won't keep you guys for longer. Without further ado, please enjoy my chat with Zach Mbele. And we're here with Zach Mbele. Zach, thanks for being on the show. How are things in Cape Town? Hi, Nicholas. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, yeah, Cape Town is fine. Uh, we had a, a sunny, clear day, uh, a bit chilly, but uh, winter is, I think, slowly trying to come in. But we're hoping for a long and wet one so we can refill the dams. I'm also hoping, look, I grew up in Cape Town, so uh, my thoughts are constantly with you guys, but I hope this winter really does deliver with some rain. Um, but anyway, besides that, we can uh, get down to business today. Uh, first of all, I'd like you just to talk a bit about yourself, just so the listeners know who we're talking to you today. You are, of course, a, a member of parliament, and I'm just going to start from the beginning. Could you describe for me your political views? Maybe you want to talk about a philosophy, but in general, what do you believe about government? Sure. Well, uh, basically, I would describe myself as a, a classical liberal uh, slash libertarian. Um, I, I prefer to use the label libertarian. Uh, it's mostly because it just rolls off the tongue easier being one word as opposed to the two word classical, liber classical liberal. Um, yeah. And what that, what that basically means for me is I believe in having a state that is uh, as small as necessary, um, whose core role is the protection of individual rights and freedoms, um, as well as assuring the, the systems or the setup for people to attain uh, uh, redress or uh, justice for when those, vi those rights have been violated. Um, and uh, maybe secondly, and, and, and more broadly, especially thinking about our context in South Africa, um, I think there's also a key role for the state to play a role of uh, facilitating access to opportunities so that people can experience uh, social mobility uh, uh, through the application of, of hard work and industry. Well, that all sounds uh, very standard libertarian theory. Uh, maybe the second point some people would dispute on, but obviously I don't want to make any assumptions here. Uh, but, you know, I think I would agree with most of those things, and I think a lot of people who read our, uh, our articles and listen in on, this, uh, on the podcast would have very similar views. Um, so I suppose, uh, can you also just uh, talk a little bit about your, your profession at the moment? And uh, I believe you're on a certain political committee in the National Assembly. Um, but uh, what's it like being a libertarian 
in the National Assembly of South Africa? Sure. Uh, well, as, as you said earlier, I'm a, a member of parliament for the DA. Yes. Um, specifically, I'm the party's uh, national spokesperson on police. Uh, we, we use the, the title shadow minister for police uh, to kind of borrow from the, Brits. the UK context. The UK context uh, with the idea of a shadow cabinet that is a, a government in waiting. Um, but yeah, being being the, the national police spokesperson or shadow minister for police uh, means that I serve on the police uh, portfolio committee. Um, and that's about taking part in the oversight uh, over the police portfolio, as well as uh, driving issues uh, through the media and in parliament. Uh, to highlight uh, key areas uh, either of underperformance and shortcomings um, and uh, putting forward our proposals as the DA for how to address those. I see. And uh, do you mind if I ask, you know, how did you get involved in the Democratic Alliance as opposed to another political party? Um, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll, I'll try to give you the, uh, the truncated version. Basically, it starts, uh, so since, since high school, I'd been interested in politics, uh, you know, reading newspapers, uh, following yeah. current affairs. Um, and when I first uh, was of voting age, uh, that was 2004 general elections, um, and at the time, I was still undecided in terms of uh, where my loyalties lay, uh, such that I actually split my vote at the time. Um, I voted ANC National and DA Provincial because uh, I did I did feel an affinity for the ANC, um, but I was also aware of the problems with the ANC in government. Um, and that's, uh, you know, one needed to support the opposition just as a as a sort of counterbalance. Uh, but fast forward, um, I first got involved in the DA itself uh, in uh, sort of late 2005. I was in university studying at WITS. Uh, I was invited by a friend to, uh, to stand for the SRC elections under a DA-affiliated uh, banner. Um, I can't quite recall why he thought he might have luck by asking me. Uh, but my answer was, yeah, sure, why not? Um, and I found that in the course of that uh, campus campaigning, I enjoyed that process. Uh, I, I always say that's when the politics bug bits, um, you know, doing the election debates, putting up posters, handing out pamphlets, uh, and, and just doing general voter engagements in, in broad terms. And so after those uh, 2005 SRC elections at WITS, which we lost dismally, by the way, uh, but, but nonetheless, I enjoyed the campaign, uh, I then became involved in the DA Youth. Um, following year, I was, well, in 2008, sorry, yeah, 05, I joined the DA Youth, 06, I was a volunteer in the local election campaign. Um, 08, I was uh, selected for the DA Young Leaders Programme. Uh, and then from there, you know, I was just a, an active volunteer member, uh, being an activist for campaigns and, and especially for the elections. Uh, in 2011, um, I was the social media officer for Musi Maimane's uh, mayoral campaign, uh, for those Jobbik residents who might remember that he was the DA's mayoral candidate then. I uh, also enjoyed that immensely. 
Um, and then, yeah, late 2011, I got the opportunity to uh, fill a vacancy in the Premier's office in the Western Cape, working for Helen Ziller as her media officer. Uh, so, yeah, these things just kind of built on each other, opportunities opening up. Um, uh, and, yeah, 2014, applied to be an MP candidate, and, and I got in, and here we are. Well, yeah, I mean, that sounds wonderful, and congratulations for uh, having such a prestigious office in this country. Um, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. I'm always interested to hear how uh, people who rise to the level of a member of parliament sort of go through the, the works in South Africa. In the United States and in the UK, I think it's quite a significantly different system where you have to run for an individual constituency. I actually wanted to ask you real quick. I understand the DA has a bit of a vague system. I don't fully understand it. Of although you know we have a, a party list system in South Africa, they still sort of assign MPs constituencies, and I know that you have a very uh, new young MP by the name of Flomela Boutwa who has visited up here in Grahamstown because I think she's from the area. Do you have some sort of uh, geographical constituency as well? Yes, I, I do. Yeah, so all all uh, public reps in the DA. Um, uh, initially, it used to be just MPs and MPLs, uh, but as of our last Congress uh, earlier on this month, uh, councillors can also now be constituency heads. Um, so all those public reps are assigned to a designated area as a constituency, which is really just a, a cluster of wards, um, and, and each party, you know, uh, divides up uh the country as as suits their needs, um, and you are you are then allocated to a constituency. Um, excuse me, um, and yeah. So so currently, actually, I'm I'm just about to be reallocated uh, uh, to a new constituency. Uh, I've I've previously had a constituency that we call Itemba, which is the cluster of wards that covers um, Langa, Pinelands, Maitland, Kensington, and Mulberry Observatory in Cape Town. Uh, and I'm going to be moving to one called um, Greater Philippi One, uh, which covers five wards um, uh, further south uh, on the Cape Flats, covering uh, Philippi Crossroads, uh, a section of Mitchell's Plain, uh, and a bit of Kuguletu. I see. Well, that's very interesting. And look, in my personal opinion, I think this sort of information is very valuable and we should get to know, you know, who our relative uh, uh, constituent MPs are. Uh, but, you know, thank you for explaining that. I think, you know, part of this podcast is that I, I think it's very valuable to have people like you on just to learn a little bit about. A lot of people are, I think, severely undereducated about the inner workings and machinery of our political system. Um, to get on to another question of your own experiences in Parliament now, uh, you described your political philosophy at the beginning uh, of this conversation, and it was very standard libertarian, by the way it sounds. Uh, but, you know, that's a an ideology which seems to be very much lacking in our political sphere, certainly in the mainstream. Now, I don't know, you can answer this question perhaps for me, what the broader composition of members of the DA are like in their political uh, ideology. I've seen many uh, high-ranking MPs sort of describe themselves as social democrats. But, you know, mm. to be a, a libertarian in our National Assembly, where you have the largest political party being a, an, a, a sort of a left-wing African nationalist, the ANC, and then you have the Marxist EFF, 
And then your own political party is broadly speaking also on the left side of the political spectrum, which I suppose the, the, the libertarians don't really fall into either one. But what's it like being somebody which has political views for which it seems to me like uh, are so rare in our parliament? Um, do you get a lot of uh, trouble for it or do you sort of have to be careful about what you say? How, how does it go? How's life? Well, look, I mean, Overall, my experience has been fine. Um, so maybe a, a, a good starting point would be to give you my t- description of the DA in my experience, and, right. and therefore how, and therefore how I would fit to that. Um, so the 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 DA in my experience is is a broadly libertarian party. Really. Um, uh, and 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 so it encompasses outlooks and views that would range from classical liberal on the one end of the spectrum to social democratic uh, on the other side, and the and the sort of median uh, thrust in between that are your social liberals. Um, there's I mean there's there's a sprinkling of people who are uh, uh, more socialist in their hue, um, but it's but it's mostly you know are mostly covered by by sort of being social democrats, um, and so because of that broad spectrum, which uh, in uh, which in large terms is is anchored in. In a, in a liberal philosophy, uh, the idea of, of individual freedom and, and rights as the, as the primary social political value, uh, the disagreements would come about as to what the implications are, uh, policy and, and otherwise, for upholding and advancing those individual rights. But, but the rooting in that uh, is, 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 is broadly shaped. And so for that reason, uh, because of that, of that rooting in individual freedom and rights uh, as, as, as a philosophy, um, I'm very comfortable in that space. Um, uh, obviously, uh, there are many policy positions that are debated in parliament um, and, 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 and even uh, contained in the, in the DA's policy platform that I would have a different, a, a different view on. Um, but my, my, self-conceptualization in that space is that I'm not there primarily as a libertarian to push a libertarian agenda. Um, I'm there to to be part of the DA and to advance the DA's aims. Um, and I just happen to to be libertarian as well. So there's, there's, there's overlap, um, but my polit- political identity and outlook is not fully encompassed by what the DA stands for. All right. Well, uh, I think, look, I'm going to start challenging you a little bit here because this is where we get into territory where I I sort of disagree with a bit. Um, I am very concerned at the extremely partisan nature of South African politics, and I'm sure you'll understand what I mean when I say that. Um, If you look at a country like the United States, Canada, Great Britain, I'm thinking of, uh, these are just countries whose political spheres I know, you you know it's not uncommon for people to buck against the current for people to vote the opposite way of what the rest of the party uh, is voting or to vote against the whips commands uh, you know America is struggling with this right now because the Republican Party is so fractured um, 
You've uh, you mentioned there that you 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 say you happen to be libertarian, but ultimately you you are there to forward the ideas of the Democratic Alliance. Now I, I absolutely understand that. The fact of the matter is, we do vote for a party and not an individual person in South Africa. Something I'm not a fan of, yeah. but I can't change it. Um, do you not think, however, that you have as an MP somewhat of a responsibility to vote your conscience of on an issue, be that with the party or without the party, as it may? Uh, again, I, I know I, I don't want to get you in trouble here. I understand there may be higher powers <laughs> listening in. But uh, what, what would your response to that be? Well, look, um, ideally, one is always voting with their conscience. Um, and I believe I have. Uh, in fact, I, I remember one of the uh, sort of parting pearls of wisdom um, explained by a former DA MP who's now, who's now passed away, Dean Smuts, is uh, she always referred to the, I can't remember if it's three or four C's uh, that's, that should be uh, any parliamentarians or public, public reps uh, sort of guidelines, sort of uh, lodestones for uh, for making decisions, it was its conscience, uh, constitution, uh, constituency, and I forget the fourth C if if there is one. So ideally, those three will always align um, because you know if 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 one uh, has run as a candidate based on on what you believe and you get that mandate, that means your constituency and your and your conscience are are aligned. And if you stand as a constitutionalist, that means that those those first two then align with the constitution. Um, and so I've never had that I can at least recall right now an example where I've had to vote uh, in parliaments in a way that goes against my conscience. Um, yeah, and that's and 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 that's obviously a very a very good thing. That is a very good thing indeed. I'm I'm certainly happy to hear that. Uh, look, it's, I don't keep track of all the votes that go on in Parliament, so it's difficult for me to scrutinise what you're saying then in, in lines with the libertarian ideology. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I think that's, you know, that's something which I, as someone who is, is not a politician and who is a voter, holds very dear. Um, I, this is kind of why I, I prefer to vote for an individual and not for a party, but that's, you know, that's just a fantasy of mine which I can't really do very much about. Um, so let's move on a little bit. You know, prior to talking to you, I had a conversation with my editor, Martin van Staden, and that is uh, part of the reason you approached me, I believe. And Martin is a very, very uh, uh, libertarian guy who is, is very, very stringent on his principles. He really doesn't give an inch on match. And yeah. in the libertarian community of South Africa, there is a very big debate on how we should view the Democratic Alliance. Now, there are a number of sides to this debate. There are a number of ways, uh, philosophies of voting. You could say something like, we should vote for whichever party has got the best shot at beating the ANC. That would have nothing to do with political ideology. You could say something like, well, actually, the DA really is close enough to libertarian ideology that you're justified in voting for them. Um, so here I'd like to ask you to, to sort of make a case for libertarians to vote the DA, and you've already said a few things, but I'd like to go through things uh, one by one. So, you guys recently had a Congress. Um, how would you describe the Democratic Alliance's view of property rights these days? And I say these days because I know the party is ever-changing in their policy, and the DA of today is not what it was 10 years ago. Mm. 
Well, look, the, the, the DA's views on property rights remains unchanged and remains firmly liberal, which is that we, we believe firmly in property rights as a cornerstone of constitutional democracy. Um, we firmly and unambiguously opposed uh, the proposals around expropriation without compensation in parliaments. Um, and yeah, there's there's been no ambiguity and no dithering around that. Um, I, I I am aware, if I recall correctly, from the the, the podcast interview with with Martin, yeah, that, that he was he was uh, less than satisfied with the reasoning given by the party. Uh, uh, well, can I for that position? Can I explain yeah. a little bit about that? Because I was also a little bit. I mean, not a little bit. I was actually very disappointed. I only heard Musi Maimane's uh, response to that. And, you know, you, you have to understand, to people like me, this is a very big issue. I mean, I, don't, I can't think of a single society on earth that has not uh, prospered without property rights. If you read what the EFF's property, uh, I mean, not property, land uh, uh, policy is, it's quite frightening. Um, and I just felt, you know, Musi Maimane's uh, response when that came out was, if I'm not wrong, he said land expropriation without compensation is not conducive to a growing economy. And it's like, you know, I, I feel like that's just such a wussy way to <laughs> respond to something which should be this massive, massive issue and is just of paramount importance. I mean, even if you're talking from a, a perspective of post-apartheid South Africa, you need to ask a question. The difference between apartheid... Uh, and the new South Africa in a big chunk is the fact that black people can own property in the new South Africa. And to take that away from them would just be this absolutely tragic injustice. So this was a massive issue. And I think I agree with Martin. We were just quite disappointed by the way uh, your party's leader responded. I'm not holding you to account. Uh, but do you want to maybe address that and, and see what you think? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to. So that's uh, that line of reasoning uh, that that you heard or, or might have read was one of several of a whole set of the party's arguments against uh, expropriation without compensation. You see, part of the difficulty with with political communication is that you rely on a mediator, uh, the the media, quite literally. To, to convey to the public what you have to say, your your arguments, your reasoning, your premises for the reasoning, and uh, not all of that gets through uh, the vast majority of the time. And because the media, at least partly, if not mostly, operates on the principle of newsworthiness, um, even if what you're saying is important and substantive, uh, they don't necessarily carry it. So, and, and, and that's why we've had this trend of, of uh, communication from parties tending to be about sound bites and buzzwords and buzz phrases and that sort of thing. So, Musi and the party's full exposition on the, the EWC debates was contained in his Bukamoso uh, newsletter that he released um, uh, very shortly after, after that debate. And also, if you if you were to read the speeches by the DA MPs in that debate, um, it was much more expansive. In particular, also referencing the point you just made now, that uh, the original sin, as it's come to be called, around uh, land and property ownership was the 1913 Land Act. 
um, which deprived black South Africans of the right to, to own land outside of the, the demarcated uh, uh, homelands as they as they became. Um, so that's that's fully part of the the conceptual framework of difference around the arguments we make. Um, and uh, I wish there was a way to to mitigate uh, how much the media filters what we actually say versus what lands on the newspaper pages or, or the online websites. Um, but the full position is encompassing of, of the, call it the, the moral or the philosophical liberal uh, premise and arguments against EWC. Uh, it just didn't quite come across uh, um, as, as widely or as comprehensively as we'd like. Well, that's totally understandable. Uh, look, these things happen sometimes. Obviously, when you rely on a media who is not exactly unbiased, you will never get the full picture. Obviously, the publication I'm associated with is quite openly biased, and I, I don't mind that. Uh, but, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Since that initial reaction, I have been quite satisfied, I think, with the DA's position on this. Um, I'm just, you know... I still have my concerns here and there, uh, but I think after the, your, your guys' conference, I, I think on land, I'm, I'm not overly concerned about the DA. Briefly, I just want to ask you, you know, I, it seems to me quite unlikely that a change of the constitution could happen with our current parliament. Um, what do you think the chances are in the next election? I don't know if the DA does, uh, I'm sure they do internal polling uh, to see what the elections are going to look like. But basically, Martin and I's contention in this last podcast that we had was that this issue of land is so important that it's almost what well, I would say for me, it is going to be almost the single issue of the next election, i.e. whether or not you believe in changing the Constitution to remove the property rights clause. Um, does that seem likely to you as an, as an MP who's right in the whole um, the, the middle of it all? Uh, you mean do I think an amendment is likely to happen? Yeah, do you think that's do you think it's plausible that it could happen? No, I I don't think it's likely to happen. Certainly not before the elections, um, because if you think about the process that is required for a constitutional amendment, uh, it's it's quite a lengthy one. I mean, right now we've got the constitutional review committee whose deadline is August. Uh, to to invite public submissions and 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 and, and do public hearings on the proposed uh, uh, amendment, um, but the actual process of amending the constitution is 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 no different from amending any law because the constitution actually is an act of parliament. So that needs a, a, a restart of public hearings, public submissions. Given the scope and the gravity uh, of the proposed amendments, it's going to have to be quite an, quite an expansive and wide-ranging uh, uh, process, probably a whole national roadshow of public hearings in all the provinces. Um, and then it'll have to come back to Parliament and be processed uh, 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 through, through a committee. Um, and then in, in, in terms of going through the NCOP, that restarts a whole other process because then the provincial legislatures have to undertake their own process. Um, and given the timelines that entails, uh, I don't see that happening, uh, being completed before the elections. And my suspicion and my intuition is that the ANC just wants to have 
the vague, broad notion of expropriation as a compensation on hand, as an electioneering rhetoric tool, um, uh, so that they can sort of band it about for the, for the general elections. Uh, but once they, well, if 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 and or once they they then receive their ele- electoral majority and mandates again, uh, then it'll likely die a, a very quiet death in foul routine somewhere. Um, but you know, one can never predict politics, um, and the EFF, who have been major protagonist of this idea, are certainly not going to let it uh, sort of rest uh, too quickly. So. We'll have to take a step by step and see how it goes. But I really don't see any kind of amendments happening uh, before the elections next year. Yeah, look, I mean, my suspicion is also that this it could be part of just a broader electioneering campaign. Um, I think there are lots of patterns if you look at political parties around the world uh, where you have this sort of radical splinter group similar to the EFF. The analogy I like to use was UKIP, who didn't splinter from the Conservative Party in the UK, but they basically took the issue of Brexit, and then when Brexit happened, UKIP's support uh, was uh, was completely decimated. Uh, my my estimation is that the EFF is going to lose quite a few votes to the ANC, but you know my concern is that this electioneering campaign of talking about land expropriation from the ANC is actually going to work. Uh, but anyway, look, it's all just speculation at this point. I guess we'll have to see. But you know, the bottom line is, I personally, and I think we all do here view this next election as, as being extraordinarily important and we want to vote for a party that will defend property rights. Um, let's go to another tenet of uh, libertarian thought and that's freedom of speech. Now, I'm going to start off by asking you, before I even ask you, uh, let, let me actually start off like this. Uh, could you sketch for me in your in your own view the extent to which you believe in freedom of speech and um, if there should be any limitations on it, what do you believe those should be? Um, well, obviously, I, I believe in maximum freedom of speech. Um, I, I am comfortable with the uh, curtailments of it uh, within the framework of what the Constitution currently outlines. So uh, uh, freedom of, of speech is not protected if it entails... Uh, incitement to violence um, uh, and those kinds of things. I can't recall the exact wording, but uh, but those grounds outlined in the Constitution uh, seem to make sense to me. Um, I think what's I think I, I do think though what is uh, or has been missing in our discourse in this country, insofar as the issue of freedom of speech is concerned, is that um, in 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 encountering freedom. Sorry, in, in encountering views that are expressed, which are which are patently, um, you know, uh, irrational or illiberal or prejudiced or whatever, um, I think we we've been there's been a misinterpretation that freedom of speech means that you know I, I get to say what I like, and and if I get any pushback, then that's that's uh, undermining my freedom of speech. No. Freedom of speech is about creating an open field for debates. So if you say something and somebody counters that, that's also freedom of speech. Um, and 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 I and I worry about a trait that emerges which says that freedom of speech is for me but not for you. Um, and that's something that we need to work on as a as a country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hundred percent agree there. I think one of the things about freedom of speech is that that's actually the good thing about it is that it is a cleanser. 
Uh, if you have an, an opinion or an idea which is very bad, you're going to get bad feedback from that opinion. And it's like the phrase that goes, sunlight is the best disinfectant. You know, and we've seen this multiple times in the, in the cases of a few uh, online racists. Uh, their lives have been ruined without a single uh, touch of the law and people, nobody will hire them and so on and so forth. So this is actually one of the great things about free speech. Although in South Africa, over and above that, uh, we now have prosecutions um, for people saying mean things. And I'm not going to hone in on a specific case. Um, but this, you know, it's, it becomes very difficult to argue against this because people are like, what are you trying to defend this person saying that? But the bottom line is, I think, you know, Ron Paul said in a debate, we don't have freedom of speech to talk about the weather. And Leon Lowe gave a, from the Free Market Foundation gave a great analogy. And he said something along the lines of the extent to which you believe in free speech is the extent to which you believe in somebody else's right to say something which you disagree with. Uh, because if you only believe in the right of other people to say things you agree with, that's not really free speech at all. That's sort of speech fascism. So with yeah. that in mind, um, I'm going to ask you a bit of a controversial question. I'm going to say, how often do you find yourself at odds with your party on the view of free speech? Um, I don't think I've ever found myself uh, fundamentally at odds. Uh, not with Pumzila Van Dam? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Not with, not even with people like Pumzila Van Dam or, you know, ones in, in the sort of more left-wing camp of the DA? Um, no, no, not really. Look, I mean, so what's great about the DA is that in, internally we, we have a very strongly established culture of, of open debates. Um, and so when when there's a topic on the table in a in a in a caucus or or in a council, uh, it's it's open field for everybody to to air their views and to make their arguments. Um, but obviously, once a broad consensus is is arrived at, or if the leadership gives direction as to what the party's public position will be, uh, then everybody must fall in line and must and 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 must uh, uh, sort of be be on the same side in 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 advancing that. Um, and that's that's something that I'm comfortable with because I've never found that final position is one that is completely incompatible uh, with uh, with what I believe. It will it, it will always be uh, conditioned or inclusive of. Uh, uh, whatever viewpoint I will have had. Um, so, I mean, I don't remember ever ever having sort of roaring ideological uh, uh, clashes with, with my colleagues. I mean, obviously, you know, I will say things like, yes, I believe education and, 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 and healthcare should be entirely privatized and replaced with a voucher system. Um, and, and they will believe that uh, direct state delivery is the way to go. And that's fine. Just agree to, to, to disagree. Um, uh, yeah. But the thing that concerns me more, and I have to really push you on this point, it's just a, a big concern of mine, is that you can agree to disagree. And I think it is, you know, you know, well done for having a party that can have internal disagreements and not completely fall apart. I also think that's quite an important thing. Um, I think my concern is more when it comes to actually voting on these things in Parliament. So you can agree to disagree behind the, the doors of the DA Congress and in policy-making decisions, 
Uh, but when the vote comes up in Parliament that says, would you like to uh, vote for Law X, which will inhibit liberty, and if your party votes one way, uh, would you could you conceive of yourself voting another way? And I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but there's a very good reason why I'm asking this question, and that's because I think there's a big concern among people like myself of the hyper uh, partisanship of South African politics and it's in our nature because we have a party list system and I absolutely get that but it's very concerning when we have matters uh, coming up for votes in the National Assembly which are of paramount importance so I mean what do you think of that well if if, if the question is would I ever vote uh, against the party uh, or against the party line in parliaments, um, I, I don't conceive myself uh, ever ever doing that. I mean, it depends on the context. So, with with every issue that's going to come up for for debates in parliaments, uh, we have the the caucus debates and, and discussion. Everyone advances their views, and on a number of occasions, I've been persuaded uh, to actually change my mind uh, because of, of an argument advanced by by another colleague. Um, and if that's the case, that's fine. That's the entire purpose of, of debate, is to be persuaded uh, uh, through, through reason uh, and, and, and through debates. Um, and so I, I, I haven't had it so far, and I can't imagine a situation in the foreseeable future where there would be an issue of fundamental uh, conscience and incompatibility regarding parliamentary votes Basically, because because we're up against the ANC and the EFF, who are generally always going to be putting forward the wrong ideas, uh, we have the luxury of generally always being on the right side of the arguments. Um, the the waters have not been greatly muddy, at least not of late, uh, regarding ANC governance and ANC policy positions. Um, so that's, that hasn't been a, a forefront issue or concern for me. All right. Well, thank you for sharing your views on that. I'm sure the listeners will uh, take that information. These things are very important to keeping a limited government, as I'm sure you would appreciate that. It's that MPs should really vote their conscience. And I, I like the four C's that you mentioned earlier. I think all MPs should take that to heart. Uh, I'm going to move on to another question now. This is just another point which people who I discuss politics with often talk about, uh, you know, what would you say if somebody came up to you and said, you know, the DA has got no principles. They keep changing their policies to suit a more populist message. Uh, do you think there's any truth to that? I don't, uh, but, I, but I can see in a way where some people might believe that. So, you know, in, in politics, uh, there's your political character, which is your, your principles, your values, uh, which translates then as a certain uh, broad vision that you outline and, and, and that takes concrete form in, in your policies. So that's the one side, political character. And then there's your political communication, which is uh, how you position, how you project, what you, how you uh, uh, frame and condition what you broadcast. Um, and that second aspect is very much contextual. So the first part is, is your anchoring at your foundation. Uh, that is who you are no matter what, right? Um, and, and, and so th 
that's unchanging. But your communication has to be agile, adaptable, and contextual. Because if one's premise, and this is this is certainly my my premise, if one's premise is that politics is the contestation for popular supports, for ideological influence, and for governing power, that's always going to be relational. It's in relation to whose support you're trying to obtain, who, who you're trying to uh, uh, to exercise influence over. Um, and who you're trying to get on your side to to get you into a position of of governing power. So um, I am comfortable with the adoption of what might be socialist-sounding language, but as long as the 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 policy reasoning and premise behind that uh, remains aligned to my uh, to my to my convictions and my principles, I'll give you an example. Yes, please. Um, in, in the arena of, um, of higher education funding, which was a big debate uh, from last year, stretching back about two years before that, uh, obviously encompassing FISMAS 4 and culminating in the uh, HEFA Commission, uh, the, D, the, the summation, the, the slogan of the DA's position is free quality, sorry, it's, uh, it's f- f- free higher education for the poor. Sorry, free higher education for qualifying students, right? Yeah. That's the slogan. Free higher education for students. So when you break that down, you get into the explanation about the fact that it's not free just in the sense of come one, come all. It's free in the sense that you are giving financial aid, uh, either as one or a combination of scholarships or bursaries, as well as uh, student loans to the second part is then qualifying students. That qualifying has two aspects. It's whether you have the academic merits to get into university, and it's also whether you have the, the socioeconomic uh, uh, merits based on, on household income. So, I mean, that's a package of four or five different elements, but when you are uh, uh, doing a political communication and you want to get that across in a digestible way, it doesn't help to give people five things that, that all hang together for them to, to process. You will lose your audience. That's why you sum it up as one slogan. Free higher education for qualifying students. Boom. And then you have the conversation beyond that. So it sounds socialist as a slogan, but the reasoning and the policy package underlying it is decidedly not socialist. Um, and, that's, and that's the balance that we always play. So I understand if people will hear a DA slogan and think, ooh, that sounds very left, they're stopping liberal. Uh, but just hear the slogan and just you know, stay tuned in to listen to the explanation of the policy, uh, the policy package underlying that, uh, because that will give reassurance uh, for, for most, uh, except for those who might uh, perhaps wanting, be wanting something that's decidedly uh, uh, maybe even sort of near anarchist. I don't know, um, but but generally, you know, if you if you if you give it time and you digest the the ideas that lie behind the slogan, and that's why I say I, I really have never had cause to feel concerned because I guess having the luxury of being inside the machine, I'm privy to the debates, discussions, uh, and 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 the policy papers that come out of that to be like, yeah, the content, the substance. 
Well, I think that's a very uh, interesting point to hear from you. And it, it just does go to show that I think voters, I'm certainly a believer that, you know, uh, as a voter, you should take a bit of responsibility to actually research who you're voting for and what the policies are. And that's why I've gone and read up on the manifestos and, and stuff like that. But I think you're right. You know, uh, you, you, you do make a good point there. And if there's any lesson, I think that can be learned from that. It's that just read up actually on who you're voting for and what they actually believe. And I'm, you know, I've told a number of people, for example, who were big EFF supporters, actually what their land policy was, and they just didn't know. Um, so if anything, yeah. that's just a, a big lesson. But I think it's a good way to end off. Uh, Zach, thanks very much for coming and chatting on the podcast. I, I, I suppose I'll end off with one question. Uh, what do you think the future for the DA is looking like? Um, the future for the DA, uh, look, I've, I've always said that my, my stance in active politics is one of cautious optimism. Um, we've, we've got one thing counting on our side, which is that we, we're the only party that has grown consistently since 1994. I remember you and Martin having a, 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 discuss, a, a, a debate about that in the last podcasts, there, and, and, and there has been growth in every election. There's there's not one year to we we've backslid. All right. Um, and so the we have momentum on our side. Um, I think 2019 is going to be a very challenging election in terms of countering the headwinds of Ramaphoria, um, yeah. as it's come to be known. Yeah. Um, but what always helps is that we still have a distinct uh, value offer uh, to make in contrast to our competitors. Um, and really what we need to, to work on is the, is the operational side of, of having the machinery to, to get that out and deliver it in, in a compelling way. Um, I think we, we are massively behind the ANC in terms of what's called the, the ground war. So having the grassroots machinery of structures and volunteers and activists uh, who can do door-to-door canvassing and the kind of direct voter interface that is the most effective form of, of, of political action. You know, voters, voters like you and me will listen to TV and radio, news bulletins, read newspapers, uh, you know, go online, um, and 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 we sorted. Uh, but the vast majority of voters actually need somebody who will sit with them in their home on their couch for two or three hours, so they can ask all the questions, get all the answers, and and really have a proper substantive engagement. And the ANC is very good at that, and we are lacking, especially in the in the growth communities. Um, and that's the big push we need to make. Um, and yeah, the, the big aim is really just to, to drive towards realignment of politics so we can have a more, a more competitive landscape. Because I think once we have a credible uh, alternative that is uh, a meaningful counterbalance to the ANC, um, we'll, we'll see a greater fluidity in the landscape. That's, that would make for much more conducive conditions for, for example, a libertarian party. I always say, right now, under these conditions, I wouldn't join a libertarian party, even though I am one myself, because there's just no oxygen for it. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it, it, it's not a conducive landscape. But once we have that, um, then there would be space for one that can, you know, get a two, three, four percent in parliament, um, and then starts more more directly and consistently injecting those ideas in the discourse. 
But as we always say, politics is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and so we just take some some patience and strategic, um, uh, you know, sort of acuity uh, to to read the landscape, position, uh, make the best position uh, or the best step forward based on what you have uh, before you. Well, I think that's a really great way to end off. Uh, Zach Mbele, thanks very much for chatting on the podcast and I wish you the best of luck for your political campaigns in the future and for the next election. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. This is just another reminder that if you like our work and you'd like to keep up, like Rational Standard on Facebook, take a look at our website, www.rationalstandard.com, follow us on Twitter, at Rational Stand, or you can also follow me on Twitter, at Nick Babaya, at N-I-C-K-B-A-B-A-Y-A. Until then, we'll see you next time.